Hey there, and welcome back to the LYF podcast. Monica here, and I'm very grateful and excited to introduce um, today's episode. I had the privilege and the opportunity to interview Michelle Mapson. She is the chief advocacy officer of a nonprofit organization called Black Millennials for Flint. And I am super grateful that I was able to connect with them because I found them actually on Instagram, positive side of social media. (laughs) And I found them on the Intersectional Environmentalist Instagram page. And I was very, very much drawn to this organization because of the topic of water. And of course, perhaps some of you know that some years ago, there was a water crisis in Flint, Michigan. And a lot of it wasn't spoken at first, but then as the issue got worse, that is when it started to make headline news nationally and internationally. So it's incredibly inspiring that Michelle and her team got together to create this organization to help solve the water crisis on U.S. territory. And they've also been able to, through their work, been able to show that it wasn't like an anomaly. Like this is something that unfortunately still is happening in the United States. So it was an incredibly enlightening conversation that I got to have with Michelle. I learned so much about water and then also social justice, and how it's all connected. And I hope that all of you also learn something new today and then also can look at perhaps other ways that you can help in your community or at least help bring more education around this topic. So again, happy listening. And again, I hope many of you get to learn something new today with this interview. Enjoy. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the OAF podcast. Monica here. And today I am super excited. I am joined by Michelle Mabson. She's the chief advocacy officer of Black Millennials for Flint. They are a national environmental justice and civil rights org with the purpose of bringing like-minded organizations together to collectively take action and advocate against the crisis of lead exposure, specifically in African-American and Latino communities throughout the nation. So thank you so much, Michelle, for being here. Hi, thanks for having me, Monica. Happy to be here with you. Yes, and I want to shout out also the Intersectional Environmentalists, a nonprofit organization. I found Black Millennials for Flint on that Instagram page, and I was just so inspired by the work that y'all have been doing. And water is something that I've worked closely with previous to working with the Love Yourself Foundation. I did a lot around water and through organizations to eliminate bottled water and then also just to bring more knowledge about all the you know water issues throughout the planet. So it's, yeah, water is near and dear to my heart. We need water to be alive. (laughs) It shouldn't, it shouldn't be an issue, which unfortunately it is. So I'm super excited to get to talk to you more and help folks understand more all the work that y'all are doing. Yeah. Awesome. And you couldn't see me, but I was like giving some silent snaps over here (laughs) for intersectional environmentalists. I think they're doing incredible work, especially around the education piece. Um, making sure folks are aware and connecting to other organizations that are doing work on the ground. I think that's that's really the value of kind of this online advocacy that we can do in the absence, again, of being able to do a lot more in person. Mm-hmm. So yeah, shout out to them as well. 
Yes. Yes. I love it. And they have such a strong following and it's growing. So yeah, it's, it's super exciting to see that people more and more are caring and wanting to learn, you know, all the ways that they can help or, or at least bring more education. So, yeah. So Michelle, my first question I always ask folks that join me on here is what is it that you love about yourself and why? I have a big smile about that. I love that. I love many things as I've gone over the age of 30, learned to love a lot about myself that I didn't recognize as a younger person. But I'd say one thing that sticks out to me, especially that's kind of relevant to this conversation is a quote by Robert Frost and that famous poem around taking the road less traveled. Mm. And that's somewhat been a mantra. And I've been thinking about, especially since I got into college years ago and realized that I didn't want to be a medical doctor. I actually had planned to pursue that, which was something my grandfather did as a student at Howard University. And I also pursued my degree at Howard University. So shout out to Howard in Washington, DC mm-hmm. and all the other HBCs out there. But I, I felt like I kind of had this prescribed, like I knew what I was going to do for a really long time kind of way about myself. And wasn't until learning about climate change and really after an experience in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina, in fact, that I recognized there's this issue around preventing these things from happening in the first place. And I didn't know or see a lot of folks who looked like myself in this space. And so I'm not going to lie, it was a very, it was a bit daunting in undergrad to go from having a cohort of people who knew what they wanted to do. We're all pursuing medicine. We're going to go to medical school. We were pretty set about kind of deviating and deciding that I wanted to pursue something that A, was not offered at Howard at the time. And we didn't really have a set like earth or environmental science program at all. They got rid of it in the nineties. And so I had to Mm -hmm. rely on one mentor who encouraged me to apply to a graduate program at the university of Michigan and who encouraged me to pursue this work even though I, A, again, didn't see people who looked like me. And I also didn't know what a career in this space might look like. I was definitely very green, pun intended, going into <laughs> the environmental work um, as a grad student. So I'll wrap that up just by saying, for me, that road less traveled has been something I've taken with me for quite some time. And it's turned into, I would say, if I will, being a trailblazer, really being comfortable being in a position that maybe didn't exist before. It's what allowed me to be a part of the founding of an organization like Black Millennials for Flint, which is the only environmental justice and civil rights organization of its kind doing this work in the country, or even as my my actual day job as a scientist at an environmental law organization that did not have scientists at the time, only one other scientist when I joined. I was the first to fill that position as well. And so just being able to be a lot more comfortable with what I have to offer and my own expertise and really also being adaptable when issues like this, especially around climate or water or things like that, we're still learning a lot. I think every day there's more information that we're getting to better understand And so I'm very comfortable in that space as well as of learning a new concept or connecting with other groups that are doing great work that I may not have known about before. So I really love that I'm willing to put myself out there and do something that maybe hasn't been done before. Yeah. Well, I want to say bravo and it's so commendable and especially like the sustainability, environmental sustainability, all that stuff. It is sort of so new and it really does take someone that cares a lot 
and that is willing to, like you said, be a trailblazer. So I'm so grateful that you've chosen this path and that you are doing the work that you're doing because now more than ever, we need that. We do. I see that a lot in young people, which is so encouraging with movement building and the recognition that there is an urgency to this, the kind of work that we're in, especially if you do climate or environmental work at all. We know what that urgency is, and so many folks have picked up the helm, even though we may not have been at all the cause of any of what we're seeing today, but mm-hmm. we're willing to be like a part of that solution. So I think it's a great space to be. I really do enjoy Absolutely. Yeah. It's like we've inherited quite a mess, but it is really nice to see, like you said, so many folks willing to bring solution. So one question that I had is, and this is something that perhaps not everybody realizes that right? The intersection of environmentalism with social justice issues. So can you talk a little bit about that and the connection and why people? Yeah, no. Okay. No. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to put on my, my teaching hat, but I will go a little, give a little historical context. I think that's important. So when we talk about, especially the environment and this term environmental justice and how did it get started? Where did this happen? It, it really goes back to an issue several decades ago in North Carolina, a really small town in North Carolina where called Warren, well, county, if you will, but called Warren County, where some hazardous waste, so really toxic, well known to be toxic at that time. It wasn't, there was no question that the waste itself was something that could really harm people if they were exposed. And so this particular town that was 95% Black was selected out of all of the counties and towns in the state of North Carolina to be where this hazardous waste would essentially be dumped without much environmental oversight as far as making sure that this waste wasn't going to get into drinking water or since this is a farming community, making sure this wouldn't impact the soil and make sure people could still grow healthy foods without worrying about contamination. None of those considerations were happening. And in fact, this community didn't even have a say in the decision to cite this particular hazardous waste dumping ground in their community. And so they literally used their bodies when these trucks were coming in to dump this hazardous waste to stop this from happening. And I wish I could say this was a success story. Hundreds of people were arrested. And and, I mean, we see this even with um, a lot of the pipeline development happening today, people using their bodies as a mechanism to stop these major corporations from degradating the land. But this has been happening for decades. This has been happening since the inception of this country. So this idea that folks were not able to be a part of the decision-making process of what is happening in their community And that being the rallying cry for this issue of environmental justice, saying this is happening across the country. This particular county may have been what really allowed us to have a prime example, but this wasn't happening in a vacuum and only here. If you look all throughout the South, but really all throughout the country, the number one sort of indicator as to where you live and how close your proximity was to, let's say, a hazardous waste site which is an environmental health threat, was race. It didn't matter how much money you made. It didn't matter you know, what your education level was. Race was, was and still remains the single indicator of association with proximity to these types of sites. And so from there, this issue of environmental justice, the study of it, the understanding of this phenomenon has shown us that it is not by mistake that it's communities of color 
that are often less with the environmental harms, the environmental burden that other communities simply don't have to worry about. And we see this internationally as well. I mean, we see the countries like in China and like on the West Coast of Africa that's taking in e-waste. So a lot of electronic waste and other waste from these massive barges that just set across the sea or set across the ocean and end up on the coastline contaminating entire coasts. So this is not necessarily just the US-centric phenomenon, unfortunately, but I think it's important that we name this, that we name this issue of environmental injustice, environmental racism at the end of the day is what we really want to call it. And the fact that environmental justice actually seeks to overturn that, it actually says, okay, people need to be a part of this decision-making process. And more than that, they deserve a place to thrive, a place to have a healthy environment, to have a nutritious food, to have access to clean air and access to clean drinking water. All of this is interconnected at the end of the day. And so environmental justice names that right for all people, but especially those who've been disadvantaged and disproportionately impacted for many years by these injustices. So that's a little bit of my soapbox on environmental justice, but especially again, connecting as you ask the social justice, if anybody knows about Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., you will know that in one of in his final days, some of the protesting that he was doing was actually for sanitation workers in Tennessee. And many of them, and all, well, all of them being Black, but they were experiencing horrific conditions as sanitation workers and were trying to basically unionize and trying to improve their conditions. And an environmental space also acknowledges that workers, whether it be in a factory or a farm worker working in a field producing some of the greatest produce that we eat today, that particular right to a safe and working environment also is encapsulated by environmental justice. And that's a civil rights issue because often a lot of those working in communities might be exposed to harms on the job that they can then take home to their kids. Exposures like to pesticides that then they mm -hmm. take home to their kids. So it is definitely deeply ingrained in the social justice space, the civil rights space, human rights as well to get into that. But I will just simply wrap up and say that I think with environmental justice, it really says, how do we build a holistic community that's healthy, that is living well, and is not having to be burdened by environmental issues and contamination. And that includes and extends to workers. So I think that it's a, I like to explain that, even though I know that was probably a lengthy answer. No, that was, that was great. No, I appreciate that. And I mean, it's good to revisit history and, and see what's happened in order to help us hopefully not recreate the same mistakes mm -hmm. or try, try to be do better. So no, I thank you so much for that because I find that at least in the years that I was in more focused in environmental work, it just sometimes even felt like there was a disconnect with talking about the racial inequality with a lot of the environmental problems that have happened or are happening. So it's, mm -hmm. it's wonderful to be able to bring it all to the forefront and to help people understand. So yeah, we can't dismantle what we don't know and what we don't mm -hmm. talk about. So I hear you there. And yeah. there are all these powers that would love us to not have these conversations and let business as usual be what it is. Mm -hmm. But that is a severe injustice to groups and communities that are impacted. So I, I named that and I, I'm glad that you're, especially with your own experience, you recognize that too. If you just peel back the layers just a bit, you'll recognize that these conversations haven't been happening for a long time. The phenomenon and the issues have been happening for so long that we've almost just gotten used to them and yeah. almost feel like they're okay. Mm -hmm. And they're really not. 
Absolutely. So then now let's dive a little bit more to talk about Flint. If you can, maybe there's some folks out there that don't know what happened in Flint, Michigan with water there. If you could just give a little history on that. And then how was Black Millennials for Flint created as a result? Great segue. So to also give a bit of historical context there, and it's in our more recent history, what we understand is what happened in Michigan is that during the around 2014 or so, Flint was placed under emergency management and that the sort of decision-making powers were taken away from the council. Flint is a majority Black city. It's your classic American city that was built upon industry, GM and other car manufacturers had a really stronghold in this part of Michigan. And with flight, which is a phenomenon that hopefully I, will, I won't get into, but hopefully folks can look into, led to a sort of a severe kind of decrease in both production of optional jobs in the city of Flint, but also sort of a city that went from 1.2 million people to just under a couple hundred thousand. It's a pretty big city in terms of space, and there are a lot less people than what, than what it was built for. And so just over the years and the fact that this emergency management was meant to put in place, some decisions have to be made about cutting costs and saving money. And so it was decided that is a decades-long deal with the Detroit Water Authority, and it may be incorrect in that term, but essentially where Flint was getting its water from this pipeline from Detroit was now, which is coming from Lake Huron, was now being decided to come from somewhere more local, from a different pipeline. And it would have taken some time for that pipeline to get off the ground. The decision was made to just get water from the Flint River and use that to filter and then as drinking water for residents in the city. The problem with the Flint River is that it's historically notoriously contaminated. I mentioned that GM and other companies have uh, major operations there and they require use of the river. And over the years, there's been a historic, again, contamination issue. Mm -hmm. And so the pipes were not, the piping going from the water from the Flint River to be treated at the utility in Flint, but then to also go into the drinking water into the pipes going to homes were not treated with the type of technology that would have prevented lead from corroding into the pipes. So I just want to clarify for folks that the issue is not that there was lead in the Flint River or anything like that. The issue is that throughout our country, across millions of literally millions of miles of piping that goes into homes, again, across the country, especially in urban environments, these are lead galvanized pipes. These pipes, we, we know that they can leach lead. And so there's a certain kind of corrosion control technology that can be placed and applied into the system that will prevent that kind of leaching. That's really important. It's required by law, by federal law, to have this type of technology if we know that there are lead-based pipes. Mm-hmm. And so fast forward, unfortunately, it was children as the canary in the coal mine and that a doctor pediatrician was able to find and show that there was elevated lead levels in children that weren't there before. That was pretty much not just an anomaly because there were so many kids that were being identified as having elevated lead levels mm-hmm. that there began to be an issue of, well, where is this happening? How is this happening? And that's how we began to unearth this understanding that the lead was leaching from the pipe that this decision to be using the the water from the Flint River had been made. I wanted to say that even GM knew that they could not use the water from the river because it would corrode the parts if they use that water on um, within their system. So it's very acidic. Yes, Mm -hmm. water can be treated, but if it's not treated properly, 
then again, it can be, it can cause a lot of issues and damage and harm, health harm. And that's what we saw. We not only saw children having elevated blood lead levels, we saw mothers who were experiencing miscarriages. We saw people who were dying from what is called Legionnaire's disease, which is similar to a pneumonia. So there was this phenomenon of really saying, okay, there's, there's a problem here. Who caused it and how? And the interesting thing is that by the time it reached the government, the federal government, even the state government, not enough was done in time. This issue was known for quite some time before real action was taken and even before the media caught attention. I like to say that we probably found out and like the media, the rest of the country understood about Flint around 2015, 2016, but this problem happened and started in 2014. So for over a year, folks were being poisoned by lead that was leaching from their pipe and were also becoming ill with mysterious diseases and rashes, all kinds of things. And again, this is a community where folks were putting two and two together, but there just wasn't enough, I would say, energy and to say, okay, well, there's a problem. Let's address this much more quickly. So fast forward to like, again, around 2015, 2016, and now folks have and understand the term, the Flint water crisis. Now it's an issue that has gained national attention, international attention even, because Mm -hmm. how in an American city are we having such a dire issue with drinking water? And I'll bring this back to the work that I do with Black Millennials for Flint. Because when we galvanized around this issue, it was this understanding that Flint was the poster child and showing that there is still a deep issue around lead in our country. We haven't eradicated lead as far as the contamination is concerned. And there are other American cities, including Baltimore and Newark and DC and all over the country that also have dealt with and or are currently dealing with lead issues. I think for many years, many of us weren't even thinking about lead, but it was lent that people began to understand and also galvanize around this issue and say that we need to be more mindful and do more as far as being proactive with preventing this type of a disaster in the first place. It's a man-made disaster. It was completely um, preventable with the Mm -hmm. right kind of decisions to be made. So I think that's also what makes it so egregious. It's just that there was just a failure of decisions and monitoring that needed to be done. If you do observe anything about the cases that are happening, there are criminal cases and actions that have been taken against individuals at the state level, especially. So there were decisions that people didn't just drop the ball simply or ignore it there was something much more insidious happen as far as allowing this crisis to occur. Wow. So I, I would encourage folks, if you're interested, to just see where that where those cases are going. This has gone all the way up to the governor. The governor at that time, Governor Snyder, has also been implicated for his role in this work, I mean, in this issue. Yeah. And there's also currently a civil to help to bring some remedies, some relief, some resources to folks who've been impacted. So that is ongoing as well. Yeah, man. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. I, I know very little, honestly, when it comes to the other lead cases that have come up, but I do know that mm-hmm. a, a, like a blessing in disguise too, that because of Flint, it did bring light to other places in the U S. So I'm happy that you brought that up. It makes me so mad. Honestly, this yeah. whole, the, the whole thing makes me so upset that it happened, but you know, through that, I think the more education is being made and more actions being made. So 
can you tell us a little bit now on what work have y'all been able to do with the organization so far? Mm -hmm. So I will, um, just like to your point, before I get into that, I want to just say that we are years later and this issue is not fixed. Mm -hmm. Even with all the money that is available to replace the pipes that contain lead, fixed in over seven years. Wow. It's a project that could have taken a year to two. So there's still this bureaucratic holdup that is actually leading to still elevated levels of lead being detected in some places, some homes, churches, and businesses. So we will say Flint ain't fixed. It's still very much, there's still so much left to do. And the other thing I'll say is that, yes, this just started a national conversation at the time I was working at the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency in the Office of Children's Health Protection, and this was under the Obama administration. So I, I felt like there was a sort of a real appetite to address this as quickly as possible. But I mentioned that because I, I found out that schools across the country don't actually test for lead because they don't have the resources to potentially replace or fix their drinking water fountains or the issue of lead in their schools. And so another thing that the water crisis brought to light is that in our schools, especially because there's not enough federal oversight there at all, there is an issue of lead in drinking water. And so lo and behold, as soon as you turn that rock over and you start to actually do the testing, almost every school that did the testing has found lead levels that are higher than they should be anything that children should be consuming. So I wanna name that because I think beyond what is happening in our homes. Schools are a place where children are spending a lot of time Mm -hmm. and lead is an issue that impacts children and infants especially. So I just think it's important that we continue to hold both the state, which gives Mm -hmm. a lot of money to school districts to do the testing and remediation, but hold that accountability piece because a lot of schools, like I said, they simply don't want to do the testing because they don't know what they're going to be able to do about it. And that's a bit disheartening. But now there are more resources in terms of cash money available to do that kind of testing and remediation. And a lot of that is because of what we found in Flint. So it, it is something that has come out of the crisis in, in a positive way. Yeah, We need to know and we need to address it. But yeah, so jumping into the organization. So When we got started, a lot of our work was because we didn't feel like the historical sort of civil rights organizations, I'm going to name them like the NAACP or even the Urban League, were doing enough to address this issue, especially when we were really finding out about the details. And I think the details are still unfolding, but as this was really in the thick of it around 2016, We were, as young people within a group of Urban League of Young Professionals, trying to organize groups across the country to send resources, to send drinking water, to bottle water, or jugs of water, to send sanitary items because folks were not able to use their showers or even cook with the water that was coming out the pipe. So there was a a huge need for resources and even wipes and, and all kinds of items for children. And so we were able to successfully organize and send resources to Flint. We were also able that year to travel and to bring groups there to do some canvassing efforts, to talk to people door to door to find out whether there were folks who couldn't get water because maybe they were elders and they didn't have the means to to get to a drinking water station. 
Mm -hmm. um, to pick up the water. Or maybe they have children in the home and they didn't have a car. So we were trying to get a kind of community assessment of really how many people were especially vulnerable just going door to door. We can't really find this stuff out on the internet. So we did a lot of door to door work at that time. And again, held a water drive. Folks would literally line up at at five, six in the morning for a water drive that started at 8 a.m. in order to make sure that they were able to get the allotted bottled water. Because unfortunately, even with the many, many gallons that we have, we would always exhaust the resources. We'd always have gotten all the water passed out and there would be folks who were like really still needing water or wanted to come back for additional cases. So those were other things we were doing as well, in-person water drives and distribution. And it was at that time that we were able to connect with actual organization or church called First Trinity Baptist Church. They were a main site for water distribution, and they've been also doing social justice work for some time. And so we connected with the pastor and his wife, have a great relationship with them now. The Tillmans mm-hmm. are incredible. They're doing incredible work. They, at that point, were like, we want to do more. We want to start a community health center. We want to also mm-hmm. be a place where there can be a sustainable water source for folks beyond just bottled water. So a couple of the things that we were able to help connect them on was this really innovative and cool project. If anyone is not familiar, the Water Box is a is the, the brainchild of Jaden Smith, Will and Jada Smith's son. But he and his foundation, which is actually called 501C, had been developing a kind of clean water technology that was both mobile and portable that was able to actually be built by common parts that you can find at a hardware store and that can be deployed around the world. But they had reached out to our organization because they really wanted to get connected in Flint because they really wanted their pilot project to be happening in Flint. And so with this group at First Trinity, we were able to, to help with both the aspects of the engineering and making sure the prototype and whatever with the actual water box itself was going to be the most useful design for folks who are going to be utilizing this really simple and, and able to be efficient for those who are coming up to get the water. But this water has now been expanded to several sites across the city. It's poised to be used in other cities as well. And so it's a water source where if you bring a big jug, you can literally hook up the water box to any faucet, to any spigot outdoors, let's say. And even regardless of if that is a spigot that has lead contamination or other contaminants, the filtration system with incredible technology, well ahead of its time, is able to filter out all the contaminants, including lead. So by the time that you're filling a jug of water and giving it back to somebody to take home, they have clean water to take with them and it's not just bottled water. So this was a sustainable source that is, unfortunately, because of the pandemic, it's not as not able to do that, namely because of potential contamination concerns with COVID. Um, So that is something that has had to pause. But for years, since at least 2000, between 2018 and 19, this was something that was able to be a great source for the community. So something else I'll just highlight, especially with respect to the community health center, which is really exciting also on the church ground, is that this is a health center that's focusing on maternal and children's health. So for those who are a little bit unfamiliar with why is lead an issue, lead is a neurotoxicant. It means that it impacts our, uh, the development of our neurological system. If a person is exposed to lead, especially as a kid or as an infant, 
They can have really terrible effects. It can cause, and it's been linked to ADHD, to autism, to deficits in brain development and deficits in IQ. And so mm-hmm. the issue around, and I mentioned earlier, there, there were with lead exposure in pregnancy can lead to miscarriages. So it's a very toxic chemical does not belong in our body at all. Mm-hmm. And so beyond the effects of it for mothers and for children, there's a long-term mental health issue, especially in the city. And the, the issue around making sure kids have access to quality education is also important. And so this community health center is working to both educate mothers and parents around the issue of potential, like if their kid was exposed to lead, what can be done? What are some of the resources, some of the wraparound services with social workers that need to be? So it's, it's been in operation now for over about a year, mm. but that was something that we at Black Women's Flint were also able to to help get off the ground and go from just an idea at a restaurant table to something that is now a fully functioning physical center that has already been helping mothers and their kids. I could go on, but but a lot of our work has to do with figuring out, well, what are the needs? Most of us are in different cities. I live in D.C., And we also have service work that we do in D.C. and Baltimore and Memphis, Tennessee as well. And so we are very much indebted to and working with the partners on the ground, the groups like First Trinity, the Flint Registry and other groups that are doing the work that is sustained every single day. And part of that is also thinking about policy solutions that are needed both at the state and federal level. So we make those connections, again, getting resources, whether that's money or things that's needed on the ground, we help with that as well. So this is an kind of going back to what I said earlier, and I know I'm like, I'm going on and on. <laughs> I will wrap to say that Rootless Travel, the idea of like, we don't know, we, even when we formed the organization, our intent was simply, how can we help? Like what's needed? We have our kind of four point action plan around education, bringing resources, coalition building, And that is something that has been the kind of core tenet for our work. And it's allowed us to, I would say, fairly organically figure out like, okay, what should we do next? And where can we add the most value versus saying, you know, coming in and saying, well, we have the solution for y'all and here's what y'all need to do. That is not at all how we operate. It's very much in solidarity and in coalition with what is it that these organizations and community need on the ground and how can we be of service? It's amazing. And I just, I love how tangible and just doing it, you know, at the end of the day, yeah. right. It's just doing the stuff that can actually bring some solutions. So it's, an, it's incredible to see even like in the short amount of time that y'all have existed, how much you've been able to do. And I did want to, mm-hmm. I saw that y'all have helped pass some litigation. And so is there mm-hmm. Yeah, any bills or anything that you would like to bring up that y'all have helped create or created? Yeah, so and specifically at the federal level, there's the EJ for All Act, which is both bipartisan, but also across both the Senate and the House, a bill that was meant to highlight environmental justice issues across the country, but understanding not only the issues of environmental health and climate change, but that maternal health aspect, because even now in Flint, studies have shown that the fertility rate has gone down mm. for folks in the city. And that's, that's directly caused in effect from exposure to lead for so long. 
So just understanding that often when we talk about the environment, we're not often highlighting and including the communities that are dealing with these issues. We might be talking about conservation or we might be mm-hmm. talking about, you know, the siting of a, of a particular facility, but there are existing issues that have to be addressed. And so the issues around infrastructure and improvements to infrastructure that's necessary, bills like that we've supported. In Washington, D.C., I spoke earlier about the issue of lead in drinking water in schools. And so D.C. is fairly progressive. They were entity, if you will, at least the city, but it's more than a city, of course, that was willing to say, okay, we need to do, we need to have some like concrete law around lead and drinking water in schools. And so this law was drafted and we had direct input on what were some of the tenets of the law? What were some of the parameters that needed to be included, especially addressing equity issues? So that's something that has, is able to be really, it's, it's something you can use in other cities too. That's the beauty of some of these laws is you don't have to reinvent the wheel. Mm-hmm. If something is done that makes sense, then other, and you've seen it, other examples in New York State, Vermont, et cetera, where they're able to take what may have been successful in one city and use it precedence in their own city or their own state. So that's been really incredible. And then also in Tennessee, there's a lead prevention commission that we were able to get off the ground for the county, Shelby County, and to also work at the state legislature level to get issues around maternal health addressed there too. So we're really especially steeped in the maternal health space and climate change because those are often left outside of the conversation, but the legislative piece is so critical. And it's the part that I think leaves a real legacy because these are laws that they're done right and done well that provide an accountability, mm-hmm. but also you know something that will be on the books for, you know, for decades to come. And so when people do have issues, if there's a violation, there's something that can actually be done. Mm-hmm. But if that law doesn't exist, then it's when tragedies like what happened in Flint happen, you know, it actually ends up being, it's something that now we have to react to. Right. We're trying really hard to at least have things in place that are more proactive to the extent that that's possible. Yeah, that's amazing. So great. (laughs) But uh, before we close, I wanted to also mention, I saw that y'all offer other types of services too. Could you touch upon that as well? Yeah, great segue. So we have a lead ambassador program, which I love. We've had several cohorts now, but as a scientist, I've been studying a lot of this for for years now, but I know it's kind of wonky sometimes to talk about, well, what is lead and what's the issue? What is environmental justice? How does this work? And so the Lead Ambassador Program is pretty immersive. We're asking between really millennials, and I think millennials turn 40 this year. So millennials and Gen Z to basically say, hey, it doesn't matter what your background is or what you're studying or what your career is. The issue of lead and really the environment is something that impacts all of us, regardless of, again, what your career focus might be. So we provide training for folks who are interested for that year-long ambassador program to learn about the issues, Mm -hmm. to have interface with decision makers, both at the state and federal level, to work in their communities. So again, our service areas are in Washington, D.C., and Baltimore, and Flint, Michigan, and then in Memphis, Tennessee. So our ambassadors come from those different cities, and they are tasked to do projects that are around the environment, around environmental justice. They are paired off with environmental mentors. So other typically millennials or, or Gen Z who are 
already in the field who's been doing mm-hmm. this work. We try and ta- try and pair off our ambassadors with someone who has a similar interest, who, who's maybe been doing it for just a bit longer, so they can have someone to relate to and talk to. We have in-person, even during the pandemic, we've tried to do a little bit mm-hmm. of in-person gathering as well, so that folks can get to know each other from across the different cities and service areas. So, so that program, as well as our EJ Grio program, which is a similar but more hands-on task-based program that currently exists in Flint in Tennessee to implement work on the ground. Interestingly, one thing we're doing in Flint with our EJ Grios right now is we're holding a, we're, we're doing a debate style discussion with the Flint Council. So in November, the council members will be voted on. There are several wards across the city of Flint that have, have competitors. And so we're hosting a debate on issues that are pertinent to the community, on environment. And so that is all the brainchild of our EJ Griots who are in Flint. So we are thinking again about tangible like ways, not only to shed light on these issues, but something mm-hmm. that will be impactful and timely based on my, like what might be happening in politics, let's say. So that's happening right now. The other thing I'll highlight, folks are feeling generous, is that we have a, a scholarship that, we're, that we've created for Baltimore students, for those who are in college and in different colleges in Baltimore. And this is called the Current Gains Scholarship. And I didn't get to mention this in part of our founding discussion, but something that drove us to also consider starting this organization was the civil unrest that was happening around police brutality. And so if folks are not familiar with Corinne Gaines or Freddie Gray, they were both murdered by police in Baltimore. And the thing they have in common is that they were both lead poisoned as children. And there is a link between lead exposure and delinquency, unfortunately, or at the very least, the fact that usually a lot of times kids will have less ability to control their actions or sort of the word I'm looking for, have a, a bit of an issue with reacting mm-hmm. to, to like exacerbating situations. Right. And so there's, there's actually quite a bit of data that show that lead is an issue, especially for the juvenile system, criminal system. So when this was all happening and when we were founded, unfortunately, there the death of Corinne Gaines and Freddie Gray was very fresh and the issues that they had faced throughout their, their short lives. And so this scholarship is meant to pay homage to and honor Corinne and her fight as an activist. She was actually advocating for herself and her children because they had been exposed to lead mm. in their home at the time of her death. The scholarship is going on. We're, we're um, collecting donations for that throughout now in October, and we hope to be able to raise $5,000 or more, very carefully, but to be able to provide students with, with direct funding and have that be an annual annual scholarship that we impart to students in Baltimore. So those are a couple of things that we have that folks in the public can certainly engage on. If you're in the service area that I mentioned of BC or Baltimore, Flint, or Memphis, the ambassador program is actually, the applications are still open. So we are accepting applicants. We provide a small stipend. It's, it's pretty cool as far as the program is concerned. So I would love to connect with anybody. Social media is probably the easiest way to find us. Yeah. Um, who's interested in that. Yeah. That's amazing. Ah, I'm so inspired by all of what y'all are doing. And it's just amazing to see the power of community 
and bringing solutions. And so I just want to say thank you to you and your team for everything that y'all are doing and providing so much hope and resolution. And thank you for having me and allowing me on the platform to amplify this work. And I really love what you all are doing as well. Because I think the fact of the matter is we also have so much to take care in terms of ourselves to be able to continue doing whatever it is we're doing. So I, I appreciate like being able to illuminate this, but also, you know, in the context of the broader work that you all are doing, it's, it's also really incredible. And my hat is off to you as well. Oh, thank you so much. Really appreciate yeah. that. And yeah, Michelle, what is the best way for folks to find your organization or connect with? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I would say our Instagram and Facebook are very, very active as well as Twitter. But if you're connecting online, it's just at Black Millennials for Flint, the number four. That's also our website, blackmillennialsforflint.org. And luckily there isn't any organization with like a similar name. So you will find us there. If you do decide to use our online forum, like through the website, we're very responsive through our contact form. We are willing to, to speak with folks about these issues. We'll also even do training with organizations. So do reach out if, if that is something that you're curious or interested in. But I think again, Instagram and Facebook, Black Millennials First Lens is the best way to reach us. Awesome. And we'll be sure to have all the, the, the links and all that in the description and then on social media. Thank you so much, Michelle. I learned a lot. You truly broadened my knowledge on lead and I'm thankful. And I know that folks that will listen are going to feel the same way. So I appreciate you again. Thank you again for all that you do and for taking the time to chat with me today. Alrighty. And thanks to everybody listening and thank you for tuning in till next time. Hello and welcome to the LYF podcast. This podcast is provided to you by the Love Yourself Foundation, which is an organization here spreading the message of love and more specifically self-love and the powerful ripple effect that has not only in building a better relationship with yourself, but also with your community and with our beautiful planet. We're here to tell you that we're all one. All living beings are connected to each other, to the universe. So we're going to be talking about important topics like mental health, environmental issues, and tying it all back into the self and ways that you can not only empower your relationship with yourself, but also empower your relationship with your community and with our beautiful planet. So if you like what you hear, please hit subscribe. You can check us out on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at the LY Foundation. You can also check out our website at the lyfoundation.org. And we have a very special new addition to what we're doing. We now have a membership program called the Lifeline Membership Program, which offers support calls, group support calls, free admission to our events, workshops, specialized merch. So we also have special discounts going for students, teachers, frontline workers. So if you want to hear more about this, please go to our website at the LY Foundation slash membership for more info. Thanks for tuning in.